Hello and welcome to Machine-Centric Science. My name is Donnie Winston and I'm here to talk about the fair principles and practice for scientists who want to compound their impacts, not their errors. Today we're joined by special guest Vineeth Venugopal. Vineeth is a material scientist at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, United States, working on creating a knowledge graph of materials. He is new to ontologies and the semantic web in general. He'd like to understand ontologies and taxonomies and what an ontologist or taxonomist does in general. I've agreed to let him barrage me with questions until hopefully some clarity is reached. Welcome, Vineeth. Thank you, Johnny. Thanks for inviting me. Great. Um, Vineeth, could you please uh, first introduce a little bit about yourself to our listeners and uh, introduce also this context you're bringing, your interest in creating a knowledge graph of materials? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a materialist, material scientist, as you said. Um, my undergrad was in ceramic engineering, and then my PhD was on piezoelectrics. So I used to be working in a lab, fabricating materials, characterizing them, testing them. And then towards the end of my PhD, my interest branched towards artificial intelligence and material science. And one of the questions that I've always been very interested in is how data is organized in the field. Uh, because as you know very well, the main drawback in material science and especially the big challenge in applying artificial intelligence is the absence of databases, specifically machine-readable databases. And that's always been a challenge for the field. And what we do here in our lab at MIT is to apply natural language processing to automatically extract data from large quantities of text. So specifically uh, parsing based methods uh, from scientific publishers. Um, and something that has always been very surprising to me is that there isn't a single one-stop database of experimental uh, material science information anywhere. Mm -hmm. So if I say, can you give me the list of all materials that are piezoelectric? Or what are the properties of uh, lithium cobalt titanate? Uh, there is usually no one place where you can get this information. We either need to go to a textbook or most likely you will end up talking to a specialist in the field who has worked on the topic for many years. And this is especially glaring because today I can Google almost everything and then have Google tell me the answer right away. And it's surprising to me that despite like hundreds of years of experimental background and people working on it and people understanding how important the field is, we have not reached a point where all of this information is sort of aggregated into uh, one easily accessible place where you can do highly nuanced and uh, focused query. Um, so that's that was my interest in uh, coming to, uh, in developing a knowledge graph, because it seemed like the most obvious, uh, since Google is powered by a knowledge graph, mm. it seemed like something that uh, the field could benefit from. And that's sort of how my interest moved into creating a knowledge graph um, and in you know seeing how the community can benefit from it, uh, but at the same time, 
So I sort of like came to knowledge graph first and then discovered that there's this whole field behind it. There are ontologists who specialize in it. There are people who work specifically in semantics like yourself. And it's it's like discovering this whole other field uh, after having learned first about the knowledge graph, which is which I think is like the practical application that I'm very interested in. Mm. So I, I I guess. My question would be, if I were to, I, I can speak about how I went about creating the knowledge graph, but I would also like to know what is the standard process by which someone would approach the problem? Like someone like yourself, how would you go about creating a knowledge graph? And then it seems like uh, an ontology is highly significant for a knowledge graph. So then what is the best practice for creating an ontology? And is it's because from what I have read, it seems uh, like a subjective process that's more an art than a science. And I wonder if that still holds true for the sciences. Um, because, yeah, maybe like I should stop here and then we can come back to the questions later. Uh, sure, great. Yeah, thank you for that introduction. Uh, and yeah, lots of great, uh, great things to, to, to pick apart there. Um, so you are interested if there's some kind of standard approach. And I realize, you know, I, I come from a um, quantitative physical science background uh, myself, and it, it's often nice to, uh, you know, have quantitative methods versus, versus qualitative methods or, or standard ways of doing things that can then be adapted. So I definitely understand that, that, uh, that um, interest. Uh, also, I will say, and why I'm particularly interested in, in talking with you is, uh, I've uh, I started off doing experimental work myself. I was doing nanofabrication um, at, at MIT, actually, um, uh, in that field. I worked with material scientists, um, and then I, I later was at Lawrence Berkeley Lab uh, in California with uh, the Materials Project for a while uh, because I had gotten into uh, web development and I, I really liked like software um, and that sort of thing. And so I, I got really in deep deeply into that world. But even then, um, I was not. Uh, doing knowledge graph stuff or semantic stuff. Um, I was mainly embedded in, in a, a world that I inherited and, and embraced um, and, and still get a lot of mileage out today, which is um, uh, document orientation, where, where schema is uh, a bit uh, more fluid, less strict. Um, so uh, Materials Project still uses MongoDB as a JSON database. Um, and uh, not necessarily using JSON LD or, or RDF or that, that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I definitely saw some, uh, experienced some hardship um, about organizing that, that data. And I knew that there, there could be something to do better, um, to do it, do it better, um, but I didn't quite have, have a handle on it. Um, then I, I discovered uh, the FAIR principles and that, that, that paper um, and that was a rabbit hole of the community of, of RDF and semantic web stuff. And since then I've, I've, I've really embraced it a lot. So just coming from that journey, I feel like, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad I can, uh, I can speak with you on this. Um, so, uh, I want to acknowledge, first of all, that, yeah, there does seem to be a, an absence of a one-stop shop for <laughs> machine-readable data, particularly ex experimental data. Um, I was involved with, with an effort with a lot of computational databases, the Optimate effort in Europe to you know, uh, get together a lot of uh, computational uh, databases and, and standardize on some things. Um, and even then, I think we've had limited success with that. We've, we've had um, some, some uh, agreement on some base API 
um, terms and, 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 and protocol, um, but we haven't really gotten too much into, into the semantics and getting things really formally done. There, there's interest in that, um, but uh, so even, even that's a bit lacking. Um, one thing I'll say in terms of, of one-stop shop, I, th I think you, you hit on something uh, uh, poignant with, with regard to Google. So Google, uh, for a lot of its purposes, happens to be a one-stop shop for a lot of things. Um, but as you, as you remarked, it's powered by the knowledge graph. And fundamentally, uh, Google is a, an, an indexer, a search engine. So, so, so Google doesn't necessarily have everything, although it, it tries to cache a lot, but it, it really is continuously crawling the web, um, the web of, of documents most, most notoriously, where it will, it will ingest a web page and see all of the links on that web page and then visit those links and um, explore this web of, of documents. So, so, so not a web of data sets, um, but a web of, of, of HTML documents that, that have links in them. Um, and it's, it's through this analysis and this power that, uh, that it's, it's been able to, to do such, such great things. Uh, even before it had its knowledge graph, it was, uh, a lot of its ranking was, was based on the page rank algorithm, which is a, a graph analysis algorithm, um, to see, okay, what, what pages link to these pages and, and, uh, uh, the pages that link to it, are, are they also linked to a lot and, and all, all this stuff. Um, but as you mentioned, most recently, um, about 10 years ago now, um, uh, in large part by um, buying a, a large semantic <laughs> uh, web graph database company, um, Google uh, sort of jump-started and like really dived into its knowledge graph efforts and 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 uh, and, uh, and announced that. And you can see it all the time with 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 their search. So rather than just this uh, uh, a text search, uh, you'll often have uh, information assembled on the fly, and you'll have these side panels. Uh, uh, with, with regard to, to Google knowledge or results, or you'll have cards, you might ask a question, you'll get like a, a Q&A card. And that's in part because a lot of people in order to increase their rankings have begun to use semantic techno technologies and linked data. A lot of pages now will use uh, the so-called schema.org markup language. And in a lot of these pages, um, you'll, you'll look at the, the, the source code of the page and you'll see it has uh, JSONLD schema.org um, and this, this helps Google produce those, those rich snippets. Um, uh, in, in, in the project that I was on, Materials Project, uh, uh, a lot of the DOI landing pages for the materials have embedded schema.org markup. And so that, that's how it gets indexed by Google Dataset Search, for, for example. So that's you know, a, a one-stop shop, so to speak, for a lot of those things. But I, I guess what I want to emphasize is that um, uh, the one-stop shop is, is 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 kind of a matter of service. Like someone could can decide to do that or not. But what what's fundamentally made Google so powerful, and what makes uh, semantic technology so powerful, is that uh, the 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 expression, the representations, and the servings of, of those representations can be completely distributed, um, and and they can be collected and indexed. So what what you were saying about a one-stop shop, about uh, machine-readable databases, it it could be the case with with semantic technology and web technology rather than having all of these people have to submit their data sets to this one portal uh and and like have that be the central place um a, a central portal entity could act like google in a sense and reach out and index what other people are serving up and, and maybe, maybe caching them so i think that that's that's one thing um to note about that uh getting <laughs> Getting to your, your question now about a standard approach to doing this this kind of thing, 
Um, there are a, a few different Can components I of it. Yeah. Ask you, uh, so, so, so does that mean that the reason why semantic technology exists today is to enable that indexing? In a sense, the reason is the reason why schemas are proliferating and the reason why we pay attention to that language is that so that our data can be accessed by these indexers and thereby reach a wider audience? Yes, I would say that's that's a big motivating factor. So with the schema.org vocabulary in particular, um, it, it has been heavily adopted by lots of people because they will get better rankings in search engines where people go to search for things. And so uh, it, it can it can mean thousands, millions of dollars um, for, for companies to um, semantically mark up their, their content properly um, so that, that Google can, can, can know what it is in a way that's, that they really can't quite do with, um, honestly, with, with NLP. You mentioned natural language processing. I mean, Google can and certainly does um, ingest full web pages and uh, they can do name identity extraction on, on the text in those pages and try to understand what this page is, is about. Um, but if authors of those web pages give explicit metadata um, in the form of, of, of schema.org typed documents to Google, then, then Google uh, can more unambiguously um, know what what is meant. Now, it's a separate issue of, of whether they decide to believe what the author supplied. Um, because you know, lots of people try to try to game search results and, and all of that. But at least um, they they know what's being said, and they can be they can say like, okay, this is what's being said. Is it true or not? <laughs> Versus what's being said is something being said <laughs> here. So so that's that's the, the big the big role of of, of semantics there. Yeah. As a follow up, uh, has this been standardized or where is it? Because I'm guessing that there are multiple indexes. Google is probably the number one, but mm -hmm. ha is, has the field sort of standardized or are there competing um, standards and how is that playing out now? Sure. Uh, so the, the, uh, I mean, from my perspective, the field has standardized and I, and I can ex explain in which ways. Um, there, there are um, people using graph databases um, that don't use uh, the standards that I'll mention, essentially the, the, the World Wide Web Consortium RDF stack. Uh, um, uh, Neo4j as, as a company has been successful in so-called labeled property graphs and, and that sort of thing, but it's, it's not quite a standard. They, they want to standardize it and, and merge it with RDF. But, but what I'll say about um, in terms of the, the semantic web stuff, that has been standardized. Um, and uh, so here's how that that stack works. So uh, there's there's the World Wide Web, um, and and there there are standards for that. And in particular, some salient standards of relevance to to linked data are the the HTML uh, content encoding standard um, for documents. So 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 a browser will know what it, it's getting when it gets HTML. And the other thing is is uh, the protocol. HTTP, Hypertext Transfer Protocol, which is built on the more general internet protocols, you know, transmission control protocol, internet protocol, TCP IP, but sort of the web is HTTP, Hypertext Transfer Protocol, and the ability to um, uh, have uh, a, a 
uniform resource identifier, the URI, so, so that, that's a standard. Um, and, and URIs have, have schemes. And so the HTTP scheme is, is, is sort of a, a big scheme. You'll, you'll often see other links to other schemes like, like FTP, or if you click on an email address on a web page, it'll use the mail to scheme and that will, that will open up your, your email client. Um, but so, so that, that's, that's the, the web. Um, and the part of that that's really standardized, again, with the HTML part was sort of documents. Uh, there's, there's definitely a very standard way to uh, encode documents of information. Um, but HTTP is, is, is more general than that. It can uh, transfer uh, representations of any types. So you can have a link not just to an HTML page, but to a, a JPEG image, a PNG image, uh, you know, a, a docx, Word document, XML file, all that stuff. Um, so, so what the what the semantic web of, of, of data adds on top of that are uh, are number one a, a representation model for not just not documents like like HTML, which is a form of XML extensible markup language, um, but also of data in the form of, of assertions. And this is called RDF. It's the Resource Description Framework. Um, and, and there, there, there uh, is a W3 standard uh, on it, um, and it, it's a bit abstract. It's, a, it's an abstract model, um, but but it, it does build directly on the web. So it says, in order to make statements about things, um, those things have to have URIs, right? So so it's already building on on top of HTTP. Um, and then apart from that, there are some actual serializations that are standardized. Just like HTML is a standard document format, there are standard serializations for RDF. Um, so some some common ones are um, Turtle, which is a, a terse triple format. Um, it, it's I, I find it convenient to, to read and write. Um, there's also JSON LD, which is JSON, um, but it uh, it encodes RDF. Um, and, and the key to that with JSON LD is you'll have this one uh, privileged property. There are a few privileged properties, but but one is called at context that that key. And uh, what that will do is that will tell you how to interpret a lot of the fields in the JSON. So you might have um, a JSON key um, uh, called uh, um, dielectric constant <laughs> or something. <laughs> and and that, that, would, that would have like some, some numerical value. But like uh, what the at context will do is it will enable you to put that field name as the suffix of a URL prefix so that you can go to HTTPS colon slash slash blah, 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 slash or, or hash uh, dielectric constant. And that identifies that property and will say things like, well, this thing has a range of, an, of a number. Um, uh, and you can, you can start to get into all sorts of things. So you can say not only is the range of his number, but the, the, the type of, 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 this, of this, this numerical quantity is um, uh, it's a, a, of, of an energy quantity kind, and maybe by default it's expressed in EV. So you can you can get all of these things uh, on top of existing JSON infrastructure, for example, by doing that. Um, so so those would be like the main standards uh, stack to like start looking into would be this this RDF data model um, and serializations like JSON LD and uh, the ways of of representing. Um, valid statements you can make. So, so RDF would be an abstract model. Uh, these serializations like turtle and, 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 and JSONLD would be about syntax. Like, like how do you add, how do I can actually see these, these triples manifest? Um, in terms of 
the semantics of, of, of or the, the, the grammar of like, well, this is not a correct statement to stay in this context. Then you get into ontologies. Um, specifically, the standard around this is uh, OWL. It's, it's called web ontology language, um, but it's, I don't know, it's more fun to say OWL than WAL. So it's called OWL. Um, and this is a language for specifying uh, grammars. Uh, so so, so uh, one thing, for example, um, there's this uh, ontology called the Simple Knowledge Organization System, which is also a standard called, called SCOS. Um, and that is uh, an ontology that was uh, built, so it's, it's, it's described in, using OWL, um, and it helps you to uh, construct a taxonomy. <laughs> So a taxonomy would be um, sort of a, a, a subset of a less powerful version of, of, of ontologies that uh, restricts you to, to say certain things that are about hierarchical organization. So the only things uh, you can say uh, to relate entities in its cost taxonomy are things like, well, this concept is broader than this other concept, or this concept is narrower than this concept. You might, uh, otherwise, if you want to say that there's, they're, they're semantically related in some way, the, the closest you can get is to say that they're related, SCOS related. So that's, that's the grammar that you have available to you. Um, with more, more broad ontologies, you can have a richer set of predicates and define exactly what they mean, like um, has unit or <laughs> uh, uh, was created by, um, that, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, uh, a couple other um, ontologies controlled with vocabularies that I, th I think are, are, are quite relevant here um, uh, for, for the kinds of stuff that we do is number one, uh, PROV. It's, it's, it's P-R-O-V, it's, it's the provenance ontology. And this, there's also a standard for this. And uh, this is how you coordinate things like, um, like agents and their activities and entities. Agents being an abstraction for, for people, that sort of thing. So, so getting back to some of the things you talked about in the lab, you might describe the provenance of some, some material being made uh, through activities like fabrication, characterization, testing. The agents involved would be things like beneath um, this particular uh, uh, spinner or, 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 or ALD system. Um, that, that, would, that would be an agent that would execute a process and would have some entity as input and output. So, so prob is one way of like, of, of, of organizing the vocabulary of, of, of how you do that in a standardized way. Um, and the final thing I, I'll, I'll bring you to for ontologies uh, standards would be um, the, the Dublin core um, is, is, is a quite widely used um, uh, concept scheme. Um, you, you'll typically find this if you want to resolve metadata for DOIs. Um, so it, it's very, very apt for bibliographic uh, metadata. So very general things like who is the creator of this? Um, does it conform to some type? Um, what's the license on it? Uh, when was it last updated? Uh, th things like that. So you'll often uh, see DOI metadata returned in, in, that, in that Dublin Core format. Um, and then the, the final thing which we mentioned, but is, is doesn't quite um, follow the, the OWL um, rules um it has, it has sort of a different purpose and, and i don't think we'll be able to get into this but but there, there's this idea of, of an open world assumption 
versus versus closed world. And so, so schema.org um, is, is very popular, but it, um, it's it's very well documented, but it's, it's not quite the same as um, as, as, as Al. It doesn't have, have those same kinds of semantics. And a lot of that has to do with, um, again, this idea of, of open world versus closed world. And, and that can be, be difficult to, to get um, one's head around a bit. But what I want to say for that, I think it's very important and useful. Uh, so Owl makes this open world assumption, um, which, which essentially uh, means um, rather than, than validating uh, whether you have a field that you, that you think you need to have for a certain data set, um, it will only uh, insist on telling you whether you violated some logical constraints. So, uh, whereas if you're looking for like a valid, complete data set in order to say feed into a machine learning model and you, you want there to be a value for this column all the time, that's where you'll want more, you, you'll want to, to close the world and you're like, okay, in my world, in this database, like things, things have to be true. And there you'll get into things like um, a, a recent standard for that that's been widespread is called shackle, um, shapes uh, constraint language. Um, and, and that's that's more similar to things you'll see like like JSON schema or or, or, or SQL in, in other places um, where uh, you'll say okay this field is required you know this field is required it has to be an, an, an integer that sort of thing whereas Al will, will, will say things more like um, like uh, a material uh, needs to have uh, a, a a, a periodic crystal structure needs needs to have a unit cell, maybe. Maybe, maybe it could could pause that or not. Um, if, if you're validating that with 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 shackle with a closed system, you'll get a validation error that's saying like, "Hey, this material doesn't have uh, a, a unit cell. You ha you haven't included that in this record." Whereas Al won't won't give give an error on that. Um, but if you if you give it a unit cell that doesn't have the right uh, type, then, then it will complain about that because this is, it, it, it allows for the fact that you might not have all of your data yet. Um, so it's very general and it, it alerts you to things like, well, this, this is, this violates like how you have told me that the world works, <laughs> you know, how you just logically described your domain. Like this isn't going to, this is never going to be valid. You can't ever make this valid. This is, this, this violates, you know, how you've axioma axiomatically described, uh, your field and domain of knowledge to me. Uh, whereas, whereas Shackle is more like, okay, now we want to close the world because we want to feed this nice tidy data and we don't want to have any missing columns into that. Um, uh, but again, I, yeah, so, so that was, that was very long winded. Um, but, uh, yeah, there, there, there's, there are definitely standards and, and, and furthermore, um, there are lots of, um, options for implementation. And so, so the, the way the, the W3C standardization process works is, um, for something to really be be standardized, there have to be at least uh, three um, candidate implementations. So, so you have that. It doesn't doesn't necessarily ha have to have to persist. Um, but but what I'll say is is for example, um, there are a number of uh, so-called triple stores, RDF graph databases. Um, they're um, uh, they're open source ones. They're uh, you know, uh, uh, Wikidata currently uses um, uh, Blaze graph, which is discontinued, but it, it's considering four other ones right now because, again, you, you have multiple choices for how you store these graphs and, and query those graphs. And, and the query language is um, 
it's called Sparkle, and it's it's another there's another standard. It's sort of like the anal analogous to to SQL um, in the in the relational database world. Um, but 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 again, you have various options for 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 triple stores, um, and and that's that's nice. So so it really has there really is an ecosystem. This wasn't always the case. Um, sort of the fire was lit for for the development of semantic web standards uh, in. Um, 1999, 2000. There, there was a seminal article in 2001 in Scientific American um, by, by by Tim Berners-Lee, the creator of the web, and um, and Orla Silla, who, who's who's uh, who's now at Amazon Neptune, but he's, he's done a lot of work. And also uh, Jim Hendler, um, who who's at uh, who's at Rensselaer and has just done, done a lot of great work. So I think there's a huge catalysis of interest in 2001 with that, um, and lots of standardization. And it wasn't until Sort of the, the the latest thing that's been significant is this closed world standard Shackle, which was uh, standardized in 2017. Um, but like Sparkle was was standardized in 2013. So it, it's been a couple of decades and and like a, a rocky rocky start. Um, and uh, oh, and right that that seminal article, I think it's called Semantic Web, <laughs> but it, but it, it, it's it's in Scientific American, so it's it's a popular press article and it's just um, fantastic, a very. Um, very very broad overview um, of, of the vision vision of that, and so uh, I, I think it sort of went went through like a hype cycle. People were, were very very excited about it, and maybe there were inflated expectations, particularly in the in the late aughts, um, uh, maybe beyond that. Um, not not quite this the same dive that nosedive that uh, symbolic AI took in the late eighties early nineties, the so called AI winter, which then 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 picked up. Uh, 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 a lot with with the, the advent of, of of practical neural networks and machine learning in the in the 2010s and, and above, um, so there's there's slowly been gaining steam and it, it's definitely used uh, quite a lot. Again, they're 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 standards, um, and uh, yeah yeah. So so that that I, I would I would recommend that and there there are various ways of plugging into that ecosystem and and, and luckily. Uh, there, there does seem to be a lot of adherence to, to uh, the standards um, for a lot of these vendors. Um, unlike in, in the SQL world, you know, sometimes you'll nominally have people um, adhering to the ANSI standard, but but really, like, you know, MySQL is kind of different from Postgres, and it's kind of different from SQLite. Um, I, I think you, you have a bit more discipline in the in the RDF world about well, this needs to be Sparkle one point one compliant. This this, need, this needs to need to do that sort of thing. Um, so. Uh, yeah, that that's sort of what what the landscape looks for that. Um, Thank you. That was very helpful. Yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, I, I want to get back to to one thing you you were talking about earlier about like sort of a standard approach. Um, this uh, there there are various ways. One one approach uh, that that I, I I like that that I uh, a breakdown rather. Um, that I like in terms of what goes into creating a knowledge graph is, is this characterization of there being three different loops, so to speak, in, in building a knowledge graph. One was, was labeled uh, the so-called expert loop, uh, and one is a user loop, and one is an automation loop. And they're, they're kind of characterized by, by the kinds of, of roles um, that, that are involved in, in doing this development. Um, at a very small lab, there might be one person wearing multiple hats, <laughs> but a lot of times there might be you know, different people. But the, the expert loop um, is essentially about getting people who are who are knowledgeable about um, ontologies. They're often called knowledge engineers um, who can you can help create 
craft these ontologies in consultation with, with what are often called uh, SMEs, subject matter experts, domain experts. So like uh, in, in your case, you know, you, you might be, um, I mean, you are a subject matter expert um, and, and there might be someone you reach out to maybe maybe in CCL, maybe in the CS department or, or, or some, there might be someone who's, who's not so knowledgeable about material science, but they really know ontologies and, and they work with people in the life sciences. They might work with people on, on, uh, on Wall Street or, or in banking. Um, yeah, banking and banking has, has a lot of uh, linked data as well. Um, and, but, 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 and so they'll, they'll work on that loop of formalizing the knowledge of the domain into a lightweight ontology. So, so that, that, that's one thing, but uh, you're, you're not done when you have that, uh, that stuff. You also need, need the data to populate. So the other part is this automation loop, so-called, and that's where you'll, you'll get um, you know, people like data engineers or people who, 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 who uh, will know how to extract, transform low data. And there's a lot of automation there in terms of um, transforming raw data that you, that you have in, um, in spreadsheets or in, in, in documents and PDF articles, you know, how do you take an article abstract to RDF? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's going to involve NLP and, but, but, but that's still all of the automation loop. That isn't about the experts talking to each other and coming up with a conceptualization of the domain, which, which, which is a loop, um, which, you know, can, can loop as, as more data comes in. But so then there's the automation loop. Um, and the final uh, loop uh, would be the user loop. And so this is, you, you'll have, have end users who are actually interacting with the system. Um, in, in your case, I, I imagine it would be uh, people in the, in the field um, uh, and, and maybe application engineers who would have a front end interface and would capture user intent. Um, things like, you know, if there's a search bar, what do they click and what do they type in? And that can help expose some discrepancies between uh, what subject matter experts think the domain is versus, you know, what's often called a folksonomy uh, rather than a xenotaxonomy, uh, which is what people actually using it, like the synonyms they use in order, like what their mental model is. And so that's a lot of times you'll, you'll have that, those three things going in parallel, this user loop, expert loop, um, and automation loop. Um, other than that, I, I, would, I would generally say the approach is, is to, uh, I've, I've heard the, the quote said to think big and start small. Um, so, so you, you want uh, to, to craft your domain model, um, like an ontology, um, with uh, extension in mind. Um, so this is, this is where the open world assumption uh, com comes into play. But don't worry about another phrase I've heard is, is don't boil the ocean, um, meaning you don't have to map out your entire domain so in the case of, of materials, you might be interested in, um, you know, characterizing piezoelectric properties. Um, you, you don't uh, have to have a, a nice domain ontology for, uh, you know, tensile strength or, or, or other things to the extent that, 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 that they matter or don't matter. You don't have to characterize all of material science and like this is material science. Um, uh, to do that, you kind of can just have part of your domain and then populate that with relevant data. Um, and and the the idea from there is because it's an open system um, that where, where you use URIs to connect things, you can always add to the graph. Um, so it, you know if you have a closed system 
um, like 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 a traditional relational database table, you know, you might have like a, a table of materials, and there are four columns, right? And and if, if you if you want to discover something new, then you need to add a fifth column and migrate the whole database, and maybe it has a none value for a whole, you know. But like you, you can't just add things. You kind of have to like reformat. You 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 have to. Uh, break down a wall of the closed world and 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 and, <laughs> and make a new wall. Uh, whereas with, with this technology, you you can start small and just keep adding things. Um, and so the idea is is to uh, have enduring connections um, without the necessity of endless transformation. So so you you can you can you can go and uh, and and do your processing. Uh, when you want to, uh, so I, that that was a bit of a roundabout way, but I, I, I hope I, I mentioned um, just maybe the different personalities involved and and how they might um, you know do some of that stuff. Could you so from what you said, what I understand is that it's easier and more tractable if we approach it in sections. So maybe say if I want to make a knowledge graph of materials, I would probably focus on one subdomain, create the the domain uh, language model for that and then add the next one and so on. And maybe it might even be a community effort with different people coming in. Um, did I get that right? Yeah, that, 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 that's correct. And, and the, I guess um, if you're familiar with, you're familiar with, with object-oriented programming? Right. But, oh, oh, so, so, so like, like a lot of like the, the, the modeling is, is reminiscent of that in terms of, of, of inheritance and, and plugging in. So um again you can start small with with, with something and if there's something you, you're not quite going to get to if you have you know a, a class that someone can subclass for that then it, it just ensures that that what you later or someone else can can sort of plug into that into that model um but 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 that's exactly right you, you start with something small and you do so with with the discipline um so that extension can be um, unprompted. There's, there's Corey Doctorow, who, who's done a lot of work with electronic freedom and stuff. This is just a, a phrase that stuck with me. Um, he has this um, phrase called adversarial interoperability. <laughs> um, and it, it, it sounds a little scary, but, but, but I mean, the, the idea is that um, it's, it's, for interoperability to like really work, um, it's, it's, it's a good idea to build systems that someone can else can plug into without your permission essentially um because the protocol is open versus you've developed a little little graph and and, and you've, you've published it and and someone someone has to um contact the author <laughs> to like actually understand and, and, and like you know they have to submit a pull request to your repository and like nothing's going to get in unless 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 you do it and so one of the big benefits of of semantic technology of the web of URI, the semantic web, is that you can provide these open protocols where people can plug in, M much like the document web, right? Uh, I don't, you know, need to ask someone if I can link to their web page, um, and and depending on Google indexing, I might become a more authoritative source than than someone else and be be a top link, and Google just needs to index all of the links. Um, so it, 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 it's a way of, of, of creating the basis for an ecosystem of, of, of knowledge to grow in a machine actionable way, in a way that, that um, 
you know, the, the current narrative centric arc of science has kind of kind of outgrown. Uh, it, it, it's impossible to read all these papers coming out um, and, and to curate them. So, Donnie, my concern with the with that approach is that I feel like material science is so vast and so diverse mm -hmm. that it's quite possible that we will never get to a place where the whole of the field has been modeled in that way. You know, so um, there might be there are someone might discover a new property and that might be a whole area of research and mm -hmm. we may need to wait for an expert to do the data modeling and add that to the model that we have created. Yeah. Um, so in such a system, it seems like the part by part approach, maybe it might slow the whole field down. And uh, we may never get to a place where we could answer the sort of questions that I sort of raised at the beginning. It's like, if I give you a property and say, list me list all the materials that have that particular property or i give a material and say can you list all the properties that this material has so how do you is that a valid problem and if so what is the data modeling approach for that sure yeah no that's it's good to to clarify um so what these standards allow is uh decentralized progress um, that that is able to, to to hook up with each other in unqualified ways. So, so imagine the, the web of documents. Um, you know, there, there are various places that that have documents about, you know, various things. Wikipedia has a lot um, there, you know, uh, MIT has a bunch of open courseware. There are lots of um, authorities um, who, who, you know, literally have have reserved different um, authority tokens in the URI scheme of HTTP, like MIT.edu or <laughs> Wikipedia.org. So, so they have that authority through the domain name system to assert a, whatever they want about things. Um, and then they they have the option to choose to link to other things. So, 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 so you know, Someone at MIT might have a web page that links to something on the berkeley.edu domain because it thinks that someone someone's doing it at Berkeley is 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 uh, uh, worth investigating in a qualified way. But currently, they can only do that with with a link, and you're not you're not quite sure like what what the relation is between the current page and that other page. It's it's not a, not a typed link. Um, what what this technology. What linked data with the triples allow you to do is have these typed links. Um, so, so you might have a, a graph of your of your part of the field, um, and and someone else independently develops a graph uh, that's that characterizes their field, um, and there are no clashes because uh, we're using we have things URIs not strings, so we don't have to worry about what you call uh, you know, conductivity being the same or different as what someone else calls conductivity, because that that term is actually a URI. Um, so, so in your case, it might be, I mean, you, you might use a DOI or something, but just, let's say it's hosted directly at MIT, it'd be mit.edu slash beneath slash conductivity. <laughs> but but the, the idea is there's this authority component to that, whereas, whereas they have this other idea of 
of conductivity that they own and used in, the, in their graph. But like the web of documents, you can then link to those things. So you might voluntarily assert on your, on your website that like, this my definition of conductivity is the same as this person's definition of conductivity. And, and what's crucial is, is by making that connection, you've, you've already linked the graphs logically. Now, certainly there, there is like compute and data work if you want to actually follow those links and ingest the graph, just like Google has to physically have servers that, that crawl the web. So the, the web just exists. It, it's just these links are there, but they're not necessarily indexed or ingested. Um, but things can connect to each other and, and, and there might be latent structure there or not. And so that's the idea here is, is yes, the, the field might not be not, not finish with this graph, but the, the alternative is that it's currently not finished that there, I mean, research is still happening. So material science is not done, but, but how these little pockets of, 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 of knowledge advancement are being coded currently, these, these knowledge diffs are as papers are as just, just text that have a bunch of untyped links to references. And it's, it's a little better now because a lot of them are DOIs. So you actually might get a graph, but, but still it's just a bunch of text that uh, is um, uh, theoretically a, a diff on knowledge. So, so, so there should be some improvement on, on, on the state of the art of the references. Um, and that's just all happening in parallel, um, but it's not machine actionable. Um, and so, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I realized I used like, like diff as like a, a technical thing. So, um, what I mean by diff, I'm, I'm sort of playing a bit into, into some, uh, some inside baseball of version control and, and that's that sort of taken the world by storm. So, um, uh, with, with, with the Git software version control system, um, you'll have a command called git diff. And a lot of times people will just refer to diffs and you might, uh, uh, on, on GitHub, if you're, if you're, uh, trying to, uh, imagine, um, to, to migrate in some software that someone has proposed as part of a pull request, you'll be presented with, with, with what's called a, a diff, a, a, a difference between the files. So you might see a representation of, okay, this line was added. These lines were changed. And so rather than have to, um, read, uh, a, a full document and another one, you can have the changes displayed side by side. Um, uh, you'll often get a similar thing with a lot of editing platforms like, uh, you know, Microsoft Word will track changes. And I think that it's probably like a way of, of showing uh, essentially a, a, a diff, a differential representation where maybe the lines that were added are in green, the lines that were removed are in red. And so you can get a sense of, of, of um, if, if, assuming you already know the original thing, um, it's, it's, it's nice to be able to have a, a, a difference representation of, of, of what is the change you want to approve or not. And that's, that's, uh, very, um, standardized with, with software. And it, it, it's quite simple because it's, uh, the Git system is line by line. So it, it, it doesn't try to have any semantics. It doesn't say, say like, well, this function changed. Well, this class changed. It's just like this line was added. <laughs> it's completely agnostic to the programming language. And it, it works quite well in a lot of instances to ha have this just line by line diff. Um, there's actually been some recent nice work on, uh, on Jupyter Notebook dev to, to do Jupyter Notebook diffs 
that are not line by line because Jupyter notebooks are encoded as JSON, so the diffs are kind of a little hard. Um, but but it'll it'll render a Jupyter notebook as a diff. So, so anyway, um, I would say in the ideal case. Um, I certainly would love as a reviewer to, to, to see, to conceptualize uh, a, a research article, a novel research article as a knowledge diff uh, for the field. You know, it's essentially, uh, you're gonna be repeating a lot of what other people have said, and I might may agree with it or not, so you've provided citations for that. And, and you're saying something new, and th this needs to be a contribution to our field. Um, so this, 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 so that's what I mean by, by knowledge diff um, at the conceptual level for, for a paper. Um, now we, we have a more fine-grained technical interoperable, one might say, view of it with, with code, um, just because things are uh, nominally uh, directories of files and, and one line per file in plain text. And so you can review these diffs and, and decide to incorporate uh, a, a proposed change into a piece of software. We certainly don't have that form of a process for science. The, the, the pull review process is is peer review. <laughs> and and, and um, and even then, the, the various knowledge repositories are, are distributed. Um, you know, it, when you when you submit to Nature, you're you're submitting a pull request to the Nature repository. <laughs> and then, if if you feel like Nature is, you know, a reputable journal, then, then 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 that's great. And then you just, you know, whatever's in the main branch of Nature, <laughs> you accept. And they, they they have retractions or whatever. Um, so, uh, but so the idea with the semantic web is is uh, you can do this kind of diffing, but 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 for, for data. Um, so, so you might have this the same sort of structure of decentralized knowledge accretion like you have in, in the in the publishing world where the, yeah there there's there's no one field you know thing. When, when there's not a field, then often you'll start a journal to be like this 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 field needs a journal. Um, and but it's still very decentralized, but everything's compiled in documents. Um, so, so we might never have the, the full material science characterized, um, but at least we might be able to um, analyze it with machines versus just have to mine uh, a corpus of documents. NLP is, is the only thing now, historically. Um, whereas, again, if, if people independently are building these graphs that can link together through web technologies in the same way that web documents link together, irregardless of whether it's effectively indexed, um, I think Google's done a, a good job of, of indexing a lot of it. Um, so, so that is another component is, is all of these people, these scientists making all of these, these graphs, um, it's, it's going to be of limited benefit unless there's some collection or indexing. And so I can understand the, um, the desire to have uh, centralization, um, in like a, a sustainable model for, for, uh, you know, maybe some Institute holding all of the material science data so that it can be indexed there, uh, and, uh, and, and served. Um, but but in terms of actually just creating the data and, and having it there to be possibly one day indexed, um, that can be done in a de decentralized way, just like anyone can write an HTML file and put it on a server, and it, ha it happens to have a link to another server that may or may not resolve. Um, so I, I think that that's that's the idea: is you'd you'd still uh, have build little pockets at a, at a time. Each each research group could have its own little little graph, um, but you could actually more machine actionably link across the entire field. In, in a way that's um, more formal and, and, and more, more meaningful than just um, citing a, a, a DOI in a paper. From what you said, uh, is it fair to say that the data modeling part is mostly done manually today? It's almost exclusively done manually, it seems like. 
Uh, some of it's done manually, um, but uh, some of it can be done automatically, depending on on um, on how things are are are, are, are set up. Really, um, so, so if 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 two ontologies are using Al and they have qualified relations between them, then it's possible you can ingest another model um, by by using a mapping. Um, but uh, I would say still there there is there is some some manual modeling. Um, the, the, the value I think though of it is that you can always link together models and relate them, um, because of, of, of this triple. So if you have any concept, uh, in, in one domain model represented by URI and any other concept that anyone else has ever developed in a domain model, you can choose or, or invent a new predicate to put between them and, and, and link them. Um, so it, it feels like while this modeling process, you know, can be uh, manual for a lot of fields that, that don't have it, I, I still feel it, it's accretive. It isn't a matter of throwing things away and rebuilding all the time. And, and yes, we have to manually build um, this, um, this, uh, this two-story house and we're dissatisfied with it. We have to knock it down and build another two-story house. It, it seems more like we can just keep adding floors. I, I don't know if, if the, the methodology is apt. So while there is a manual effort, I, I feel like there's there's more possibility um, for it to be extensible and, and build upon it. And so you can definitely lean on others others work um, and not have to have to build everything from scratch. Um, but I, I would view that as honestly one of one of the selling points as well. Even if someone's done, done great work on a model and you're unsure about like one part of it, just create new URIs for all your stuff, have your own play box, your sandbox, you know, have triples that relate. Most of the stuff is the same. <laughs> so you're saying most of the stuff is the same, but, but my little part's different. Maybe eventually it'll be fine, but you don't have to have to wait um, to find the perfect prior art. You can, you can, you can reuse what other people have done. So that ability to, 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 to build on, on partitions of what other people have done, I think also uh, lowers the barrier for, for some of the, the manual effort as well. Sure. Um, do you want to keep continuing? Um, or... <laughs> we should probably probably wrap up. This is exciting. I feel like I've I've talked a lot. I think I think the majority of time has been me talking, and I I, I hope you've gotten something out of it. So um... <laughs> this has been great for me. Um, okay, I really great. enjoyed it. Um, okay. I, I I mean, for me, especially the part that you said at the beginning, where you said um, uh, about why we index uh, as in like the role of the indexers in creating mm -hmm. the semantic tech that sort of like lit a bulb in me and I, I feel like i suddenly understood what was going on i think oh, that okay. was like the missing link that i was looking at um i was searching for sure so, yeah. so let's wrap it up now so uh one thing i i want to know is um who should i invite next on this podcast um did, I'd, I'd be very interested in, in that. Some kind of recommendation who you think might might enjoy this this kind of uh, conversation or, or one similar to the ones that you that you've heard before in the podcast. Um, yeah, I would say um, maybe Alan Aspidukusik um, at U Toronto. Oh yeah, uh, because he developed ChemOS, which is the which is a sort of ontology that uh, is being used slash proposed for high throughput 
instrumentation. So an ontology for robots, essentially, that do um, high uh, repeated experiments on a loop. Um, yeah. And he developed ChemOS, which is the software slash ontology that might be the backbone for it. Uh, so he might be interesting. Oh, yeah, great. Yeah, he's he's a co-editor, chief editor of, of, of uh, Digital Discovery, and, and he, I follow him a lot on Twitter. Yeah. I, right. Yes, I should totally invite him on. I'd love to talk with him. Thank yeah. you. Um, and and uh, another thing I, I want to just just ask um, for you, I, I ask people, um, if you could leave our, our listeners with with any advice, broadly scope, but but something just because I mean you've 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 gotten to where you are, and I mean just uh, any any advice to, to people out there uh, who are on a similar journey. Uh, you mean academically? Uh, <laughs> I'm not prepared for this question. <laughs> okay, okay, no, no, literally any advice, like um, like 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 don't invade Russia in winter. Like I mean, just just yeah, it could be any any life advice that doesn't have to be particularly related to fair or, or, or that sort of stuff. Just because, I, you know, you're a multidimensional person. We all are. So it, it, it could be anywhere. Any, any advice you'd, you'd like to? What has helped me as a researcher is talking to people from all sorts of backgrounds, uh, like we are doing now. So that broadens my horizon and helps me think about other things that I normally wouldn't think about. Um, and there's a lot of like, I feel like that's where creativity comes from uh, at the intersection of completely disparate things. So maybe that's something that, you know, uh, if people not, are not doing it already, they could try it out once. Great. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I, I would, if you don't mind, I'd like to bring that to semantic technologies just because, um, you know, they're disparate things, but, but if, if you have a handle on those things, yeah, then, then you, you can, uh, uh, relate them in, in qualified ways <laughs> and, 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 and like say, like, I think this is the intersection. No, I think this is the intersection. Um, and I mean, relating that to, to fair, that's all about, uh, Principle I three of interoperability is, is you can relate things through qualified identifiers, and um, I'll, I'll just touch back to, to relate uh, you know, the importance of indexing. That's sort of fair principle F four. You know, like your your stuff should be registered, uh, indexed in a searchable resource. So these are sort of very very important things. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. I I agree with that as well. Just I love love uh, talking with people. Um, uh, yeah, and it, it's. Yeah, there's what what is that chemistry curve? I forget where it's a it's a potential where like you know it, it's high when you're very close and it's also high when you're really far. But there's kind of a sweet spot. It's sort of, sort of like a dip. Oh, I I feel like I feel like like it has to do with chemical bonding. I think maybe, but but I I guess my. My thing with that is is with intersections. I feel like things right. that are very very close to like what I already know probably aren't as interesting, and things that like I don't even have something to like grab onto, like like my my, my mental space isn't there. But there's some like in between where I feel like I have some tentative connections, but yeah. not a lot. And interacting right. with someone just enriches that neural network so much where I already have some connection. Right. Um, and uh, and I would venture that's also um, a a flywheel effect point for semantic web stuff. So like 
the, the quote is a little semantics goes a long way. So even if you can link a little bit to something else, that might be a branching point for someone else to, to meet someone else in that other field because you've, you've created those few links and they can help enrich the graph for you. Sure. Um, okay, enough pontificating. <laughs> uh, all right, folks, that's it for today. I'm Donnie Winston, and I hope you join me again next time for Machine-Centric Science. Thank you for joining us, Vinny. Thank you, Donnie.